0: Welcome to the Enchanted Ears Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And today, we're asking ourselves, how soon is too soon to buy tickets for a movie that comes out in 2021? (laughs) So this segue takes us right into Disney news, because this week, Disney announced that they purchased the film rights to Hamilton (laughs) that comes out in October of 2021. And immediately when I heard this news, I texted you, Angela, and I said, can we buy tickets now?
1: (laughs) I was just going to say, some listeners might think that that was like, you just came up with that to say on air, but that was 100% your text message to me.
0: That was my first reaction. Disney, now this is the Broadway musical version. So they're not making this. Yeah, when
1: you texted this to me, I thought you meant that they were going to actually make, like In the Heights, what they're doing with In the Heights, I thought that's what they were doing with with Hamilton but this is the the filmed version of the original cast on
0: Broadway yes so this has been known that they filmed uh, a few weeks before the original cast was done that they filmed it and so there was always going to be this movie released it was just a matter of when there are yeah and there are plans you know Lin-Manuel has said to make a film version of the musical similar to In the Heights but he's always said that the best uh, film versions of musicals come out like 10 years after. So I think it's going to be another four or five years until we get a film version of Hamilton. Maybe Disney has it. Maybe they won't. But they paid $75 million for the international distribution rights to this musical, which is insane. That is nothing. They're going to make that, oh, they'll make that back,
1: back in their sleep.
0: But the nice thing is, too, it'll also be on Disney+. Plus. So not only is it going to sell tickets, it'll get people to sign up for Disney+. Plus because i'll be watching this all the time so again <laughs> if if they announced that tickets were on sale today for october i would buy them i have no idea what i'm doing in october of 2021 but i would buy tickets to see this <laughs> so if disney wants to uh, pre-book some revenue they might want to open that up because you'll get a, f- a few ticket sales here so yeah all right um, That's,
1: i know what we'll be doing for like several weekends yeah, just keep, going to
0: see, keep going to see hamilton so all right uh, some other disney news it was kind of a, a pretty big week we got some uh, release dates for the disney plus marvel shows. so disney had their quarterly earnings call this week and bob Iger, uh dropped some information on release dates so mandalorian season two we're going to be getting in october of this year the falcon and winter soldier show we're going to be getting in august so that's a, a few months away here and then wandavision is going to be coming in december So this fall, there's going to be a lot of new shows. And then, um, you know, next year, there's going to be like the Hawkeye show and the Loki show they're working on. So a few months here, we'll we'll be getting some more of these shows.
1: But one of the things that they did not announce, to my knowledge, is The World According to Jeff Goldblum Season 2. That is the most important show besides the Mandalorian that they need to come out with.
0: yeah, I haven't heard anything about that. I don't know that that has the uh, huge following that the Mandalorian or these oh Marvel shows goodness. have. So Listen. people probably aren't clamoring for that so they haven't announced it We release need date. to spread the word. It is a great show. and I have to imagine that there will be a season two.
1: He's just so eccentric and
0: probably, you know if you f- if you figure Mandalorian's gonna be October, that anything else that came out at the launch of Disney Plus in November, Of 2019, we'll probably have a fall release date, October, November of season two. So maybe around the same time, we'll get another season of Jeff Goldblum. I hope so. All right. So Disney also announced that they're going to be start bookings for the Star Wars (laughs) Galactic Star Cruiser Hotel later this year. So it's going to be opening in 2021. Bookings are going to be available at some point this year. Still no. Idea on the price, but I started saving immediately when I heard that.
1: <laughs> again, this was another text message from Joe during my workday. Of hey, look at this article. Uh, we We're will going. be going. We're going. I'm starting to save now. So
0: again, 2021's gonna be a big year. how How soon can I pre-buy my? trip to the Galactic Star Cruiser and then how early can I buy my tickets to see Hamilton so so some big news that they're you know announcing it will officially be open at some point in 2021 which is the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World so it kind of made sense that it'll be open by then and at some point this year maybe summer fall I'd have to think they're going to start taking reservations I I think usually you know I, I would have to think probably six months or so in advance is when they'll start taking reservations on account when you're planning your Disney trip, six months is the date that you can start booking advanced dining reservations. So yeah. it's gonna have to be somewhere around that six to eight eight month window ahead of when it opens. So if it maybe opens in the spring of next year, maybe you know, six to eight months ahead of that, so maybe like August or September of this year. Guessing, mm, throw yeah. that out there. So all right, and one final thing, this this came out uh, maybe a week or two ago, but I just kind of saw it this past week. Is that uh, Taika Waititi <laughs> is in talks to possibly direct the next Star Wars movie? And I want to say, you know, not to pat myself on the back too much here. Did she say that? Yes, but I was going to say, whenever uh, last, late last year, when it an- was announced that the Game of Thrones showrunners were leaving their planned trilogy, I we kind of talked about on the podcast and I wrote an article, a blog post that you can see up on our website, com, listing out some potential other, you know, ideal candidates to direct the next Star Wars movie and Taika Waititi was one of them. So I, I think this is great if they do get him to do this. Nothing's been confirmed. It's all rumors, but I think it's interesting.
1: When you said his name, I just kept picturing him as a vampire because we've been watching... um
0: what we do in the Shadows. yeah, what we do
1: in the shadows on Hulu, and we just watched an episode with him in it because he reprised his role from the movie. But anyway, yeah, he's hilarious, and I think that he would bring some much needed, um, especially since the death of Han, who who created such a uh, such a like a light feeling in the Star Wars movie. I think that he can probably help to get that back in the start. Star yeah, Wars and movies. I think
0: it, it's no coincidence that. After Kevin Feige is moving over to produce a Star Wars movie, that you then hear rumors that Taika Waititi is potentially going to be on to direct. I mean, Taika was involved in the Mandalorian; he played a droid. He directed the finale, so he's he's had some experience with Star Wars now. But most notably, he made Thor Ragnarok for the MCU, which was great. He's directing (laughs) Thor: Love and Thunder, so you know Kevin Feige knows him he's done, you know, great things for another mega franchise. So I think it makes sense that he would want to bring over, you know, Taika and and again, I mean, some other people we talked we talked about was like the Russo brothers who did a great job with Endgame. I think any of those those great Marvel directors, Jon Favreau, you could easily see coming over now to do a Star Wars movie. Yeah. All right, so for our main topic this week we're going to be uh, diving back into the next decade so this is our continuing series where we take a decade of the walt disney company at a time so the previous decade we did was the 1950s you can go back and, and check out that episode so this uh week we're going to be doing the 1960s which i i kind of dub this decade the great expansion of the walt disney company yes so that that's kind of the the There's common a lot theme here that happens in the 1960s
1: there, we've had some other decades where it seems like there wasn't too, too much going on. But yeah, the 60s is definitely not one of those decades.
0: Yeah. Whenever the, the company first started in the 1920s and even in the first few decades, it was very slow. I mean, you didn't have Mickey Mouse until the late 20s. They really didn't do their first movie until the 30s. They were always kind of strapped for cash. It wasn't really until the 1950s, the, the last episode we did, where things kind of started turning around because you had Disneyland. Right. In 1955, so everything kind of... Things kind
1: of exploded in the 50s, and then in the 60s, they seemed to almost hit their stride.
0: Right, yeah, because you had Disneyland, you had a TV in the 1950s, which gave them an additional outlet besides just movies. Well, Walt
1: was smart and it made all those deals in order to get himself into D, uh, into the TV arena and then also
0: well, that's how he paid for Disneyland. Yeah, I was going to say
1: getting all of those sponsorships to pay for Disney world. So he really did a good job of Disneyland. marketing or yeah, Disneyland. Sorry. He did a great job with that.
0: He had additional outlets for it, which just helped the company expand more with merchandise sales and everything. And then, yeah, just in the 1960s, it really was a, a huge expansion of the company from theme parks and some of the, the most iconic movies were released in this decade uh, and everything like that, and I think it really shaped up the company. This is probably one of the first decades where, I mean, their their financial situation, I mean, still wasn't as good as it is today. But I think this was probably one of the first decades where it wasn't like they were constantly they were worried more stable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They they were more more stable. That's a good way to put it. We'll say just kind of you know starting out before we get into the decade too much. But this decade also saw the death of Walt Disney, right? In later in the in the decade in 19 December of 1966 so while you did have this huge expansion you do have the death of Walt those impacts I don't think are felt too much in the 1960s because so much was in place before his death. But leading in the 1970s, when we get into the next decade, it really is kind of a, a malaise period for the company because they don't have their kind of creative director and visionary leading the way anymore. Right.
1: Even though Walt dies during this decade, he had his hands in a lot of the things that were being finished in this decade, even after his death. So he really does... But this is definitely the decade where he sets up his legacy, and um, you know the company really starts to flourish, but then it's it it will stumble before it picks itself back up again.
0: Starting with with the early part of the decade, again there were a lot of movies that came out, and the animation division started using a new style of animation. So with 101 Dalmatians, which came out in 1961, they started using a new Xeroxing process where they essentially were photocopying things. So before where the animators would draw a a scene and then the ink division would paint over it. So they would paint over the lines and they would have to individually paint every scene. That became very expensive. (laughs) I can imagine. to, To have to do all that. So you know, Disney was always innovating and Iworks and came up with a way to use Xerox photocopying to essentially photocopy the scenes, which eliminated the need to have that, that hand-painted ink animation. And it made the process a little bit inexpensive. And actually, the nine old men who were kind of like hmm. the head of, of animation as...
1: I always picture them as like... Um- the, the the seven dwarves like i just kind of picture them with those hats on and um i don't know like it, yeah it's that's, just yeah you kind of think of them as <laughs> something like that it just seems like a, a good way to picture them in my head
0: right but they actually love this new process i was reading this was actually from the oh my disney website talking about this xerox animation process that they actually like this style because they for the first time they could actually see their pencil marks that they drew on the animation because before when it would get inked over the lines would be smooth you wouldn't see their hand drawn animation but since there wasn't inking and it was just getting photocopied they could actually see their work so they actually love this and it was really helpful in 101 dalmatians because all of that individual fur didn't need to be inked which would have been very tedious to do once it was drawn it was done wow interesting yeah, so this so they they started this uh, in the early part of the decade, and it was also seen you know throughout uh, later movies such as The Sword in the Stone and The Jungle Book. They all used uh, you know this new style of animation as well. So again, it's just they're they're constantly changing how they do things. I mean, if, if you go back and listen to some of the other decades, I mean Walt kind of they invented,
1: pioneered yeah, many yeah, different forms yeah
0: synchronized sound surround sound the multiplane camera to give that like parallax effect in the animation yeah, they did they they pioneered so many different things and and they just you know they kept changing and uh, you know he, he never the, wanted to to just rest on his laurels essentially you can just
1: you can so tell the difference between a visionary and just a normal person who who is an entrepreneur because I mean, Walt was truly a visionary and and his his company and the people he hired were truly visionaries because they were never satisfied with what they had done. They never sat back on their laurels and said, Hey, we this and this and this. Yeah. Um, you know, we did all these wonderful things. Uh, let's sit back and be proud of ourselves and we'll keep producing these wonderful things. But they were always looking for ways to improve the process and make it better and sharper and more enjoyable for the audience.
0: Exactly. So some of the other movies, uh, so I mentioned already, was The Sword and the Stone came out in 1963. And that one went on to be a commercial success, but critically, it wasn't as well received as some of the, some of the other movies had been. And that was directed by uh, Bill Pete, who then went on to do The Jungle Book, which came out in 1967. And initially, whenever he did Sword and the Stone, he kind of had free reign to developed a story by himself. Walt didn't really get too involved in it because he was working on so many other projects. But after that one didn't do as well critically, he kind of stepped in more on the Jungle Book and made some changes. And actually, Bill Pete's original kind of draft and vision for the story was a much darker tone. I think it, it followed the the source material a little bit more. And Walt kind of came in and said, hey, we need to you know change this and liven lighten it, it up. yeah lighten it up a little bit I don't
1: know looking at some of these other movies we have on our list to talk about I'm I'm surprised they did change it and make it lighter <laughs> yeah
0: and this was actually the the Jungle Book was actually the last film that Walt Disney worked on um, so, like I said, you know, he he passed away in 1966. So he had worked on this one, uh, but it didn't come out until after his death. So
1: 1967 in Correct. October. So yeah, it, it almost was, a year. After, it was almost it was a the year last, after. It was the
0: last one he worked on. And then uh, 1968 was uh, Winnie the Pooh came out as well. So so some of the you know the the classic animation movies uh, you know came out in the 60s. You also had some. Of the more famous live action movies, if you will. So Mary Poppins, the original Mary Poppins premiered in 1964. And this was kind of like you know, that hybrid of animation and live action. And, mm-hmm. and again, they use that Xeroxing technique. So kind of like
1: the Alice comedies.
0: Correct. So so what they had started with 101 Dalmatians in 1961, they kind of perfected by the time they got to Mary Poppins. And it was a, a huge success. Uh, commercially it did 44 million in just rental videos at the time was
1: that i was gonna say is that 44 million at the time at the time
0: yeah whoa yeah so what's that that's a lot of money converted
1: into today's money
0: a lot (laughs) you have again some of you know the the best movies um also you have in 1969 the computer that wore tennis shoes starring kurt russell which we talked about on our uh, Disney plus some of the more eclectic movies on Disney plus. So that's where he, if you go back and listen to that episode, uh, Kurt Russell plays a person who through like an electrical storm is, gets his mind infused with a computer. And there's a whole, like he has um, like access to like a gambling person's like books. And then they're after him because he knows about like all their secret finances. So oh boy. I saw that, that that, you know, Came out in in sixty nine. I remember us talking about that as one of the uh, one of yes. the crazy movies out there on on Disney plus. So, <laughs> and then also Walt had uh, in nineteen sixty the movie Pollyanna came out, and this was <laughs> this was starring Haley Mills, who uh, was a, a young girl at the time, went on to kind of become a child star. She starred in The Parent Trap in nineteen sixty one, and I looked up what this movie was about because i've heard about it before and i had never i didn't know what it was about but it's essentially about this girl pollyanna who goes and lives with her rich aunt who kind of like controls the town and there's some conflict and things but it ends with her falling out of a tree (laughs) and like breaking her legs and essentially being paralyzed And then, so this is the movie I was
1: referencing earlier when I said I'm surprised they made it less dark. Yeah,
0: and I mean it—it it ends kind of upbeat because the townspeople end up show, like giving an outpouring to help her, and then she's going off to see a doctor in some other state to give her an operation that is going to help her walk again. But like, that's how it ends. Like what kind of movie? like the movies they made in the sixties, we Ooh, talked about this, like some of the crazy movies that they had back then, yeah, but this well, is insane. This, it ends with her falling out of a tree and not being able to walk.
1: Well, this, this reminds me 100% of a separate piece by John Knowles, which I, like a lot of people had to read maybe whenever you were in high school. And I just remember wanting to like throw the book out, like burn it every copy it is the worst. But anyway, it ends with the one character falling down the stairs, getting like a bone shard, something dislodged in their body. And they like immediately die. And it was after getting pushed out of a tree by their best friend. Like it was just the worst. So anyway, yeah. yeah so
0: she doesn't die in this one. At <laughs> yeah, least, yeah. Yeah. But
1: it sounds like there is some hope, but it, whenever you, <laughs> I read on your notes that it, she breaks her legs and is paralyzed. I'm like, uh, what's that about? Yeah. And again,
0: it's, the whole movie is this conflict between her aunt and the townspeople and her aunt kind of like secludes herself from the town. So there's this um, friction between them. And then when she falls off the tree and can't walk, the townspeople put aside their differences with the aunt and come and show their support. And then that kind of shows the aunt that, Hey, you know, maybe I was wrong to kind of close myself off like this. So Mm. the, the driving, action in this movie is a girl being paralyzed, which is, which is kind of crazy, but I guess that's the kind of stuff they did back in the 1960s. I mean,
1: I guess, but I thought that this was really interesting that when, when Haley Mills first came to America, which she's, she's an English actress. So when her and her family came, they got a personal tour of Disneyland by Walt Disney. And so they were going around and they were checking out all the rides and they went to the brand new to the park Matterhorn and they went to the back entrance to skip the line and a cast member said, Hey, you can't come in here, mister.
0: Yeah, they were trying to like, <laughs> they're doing their job yeah, stopping yeah. people from sneaking on the matter. Yeah, one. So
1: Walt goes, uh, no, no, they're with me. And the cast member says, who do you think you are? Walt Disney. And Walt says, well, matter of fact, I am. Yeah. Yeah. But-
0: so- <laughs> And that guy was immediately fired. No, (laughs) no. I don't think Walt Walt would have done that. He probably felt so bad.
1: I mean, can you imagine just getting the smackdown from Walt Disney?
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? If you think about that, though, in the 1960s, so if a guy comes up and says, hey, a matter of fact, I'm Walt Disney, how do you know he's not lying? Like, there's no phones that you can call and say, hey, I have a guy saying he's Walt Disney here. I can't, you can't pull up a picture or anything to confirm it. Like... Even the fact that he said I'm Walt Disney, like I could have walked him said, yeah, of course I'm Walt Disney. If yeah. he doesn't know me to see me, how's he going to know that what I'm saying right. is true? Right, if truth? he hasn't
1: seen the pictures in the papers or seen him on TV, yeah, if he then didn't, if he's he didn't not going to know. Gonna right know.
0: away, he I, can't
1: pull it up on it. I'm his sure phone. he took
0: him at his word, but yeah, that, that that's a funny little anecdote that, uh, that they had. So yeah, again, I mean, you, you talked about, so you talked about the Matterhorn being new to the park, which mm-hmm. is an iconic ride. There are so many other iconic rides that are still popular around today, which is crazy to me to think that they debuted in the 1960s. Yeah. And so many of them came from the 1964 World's Fair in New York. So Walt did this a lot. Do you kind of wish sometimes
1: that we still had World's Fairs? Because these just sound like they were such balling events. And there were so many new technologies, particularly I know that when we when we like looking at this and when we watched the imagining story on Disney Plus it was really interesting to hear them talk about all of the interesting inventions and ways that the Disney company pushed themselves to show their best selves to the world at the
0: world's fair yeah and also what was great about this is Walt used other people's money to make some incredible attractions for mm-hmm. Disneyland because he he took the world's fair as an opportunity to say Hey, I think he had like Pepsi and some people, they wanted to sponsor pavilions for the world's fair. They wanted something new, fresh, interesting to get people in. So they said, so Walt said, Hey, I'll build you a ride. You pay for it. And then he took them and put them into Disneyland when he was done (laughs) because they were so successful. So you mentioned the Matterhorn. Now that wasn't at the world's fair in New York, but you had great moments with Mr. Lincoln which moved to Disneyland, and then mm-hmm. Walt Disney World got the Hall of Presidents. So that was kind of the the invention of the audio animatronic. So again, he got somebody else to pay for that, right. to invent audio animatronics for him. The Carousel of Progress also debuted at the World's Fair, which uh, is still around, I know, in Walt Disney World today. I don't know if it's in Disneyland or not, but we also got It's a it's Small, a small World. World. And that was so successful that that Walt decided and, you know, Imagineering decided that boat rides could be a very viable way to have attractions because they're great
1: crowd control. I mean, you can fit a lot of people on the boats. They're slow moving, moving, but they take popular. some time, but they're popular. Yeah, they're popular, but they take some time. So it helps to control the volume of guests you have going in and out and keeps people kind of busy.
0: Yeah. But it, yeah, it was a very popular medium to kind of t- tell a story. And they also had the people mover system Uh, you know, debuted at the world's fair. So all of those rides. So all of those rides were at the, the world's fair and ultimately came to Disneyland. So all of those rides were from the 1960s, still around today, 50 years later, which is pretty crazy. Mm. The last attraction that Walt personally worked on was the pirates of the Caribbean attraction. Mm. Now that debuted in 1967. And what we were kind of talking about with small world, that the boat ride was so successful, they decided to use it in other places. This is a great example. So for Pirates of the Caribbean, they originally... They wanted people to walk through, right? Yeah, they originally designed it as a walk-through attraction. And then when Small World did so well, they switched it over to a boat ride. And and they had this, and again, they used the audio animatronics in there and everything. (laughs) And this was, again, this was something Walt worked on. I know they, they talked about this in the Imagineering story of you know kind of how much he loved this ride like like they re- there were there's so many animatronics it was kind of one of the biggest scale things they had done up to the point i want to say there's 70 75 different animatronics in there mm-hmm. so it's really something you know he was committed to and and, and again it's it's still around today it launched mm-hmm. a movie franchise <laughs> 40 years later oh my gosh and and it's still a very successful attraction
1: yeah yeah it it's it's incredible. I mean, do you remember like flashback to when you heard they were making a Pirates of the Caribbean ride when we were teenagers? Or a not movie? ride, the movie, like they were turning the ride into the movie
0: and I don't even think I don't think back then I realized that it was a ride at Disney World. I mean, I kind of I guess I knew it was, but it wasn't something I was like, "Oh, I really love that ride or remember that, you know, that much." So it really wasn't something that I followed that much. We were teenagers at the point too. I remember seeing the movie and liking it, but beforehand, not really.
1: (laughs) We're not close to Florida. So we didn't grow up going all the time. I mean, I think you went what, two, three times as a kid and I went once. So, um, yeah, it was, but it was something that I was aware of. I, I was aware of hearing when they were coming out with it, that this, this movie was inspired by a ride. And I thought it was a very interesting concept to take that and apply it.
0: To... I'd say loosely inspired by the ride oh, because because yeah. the original ride had nothing to do with the movies. It it was inspired by the ride and the fact that they called the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. And they,
1: yeah, and they that, definitely
0: that is where yeah. it ends. I think I mean like looking at the Jungle Cruise trailer, that does seem to be well, much more inspired by the ride. I, I would argue than just a name.
1: I mean, I would argue that the feeling is the same at, up for Pirates of the Caribbean. And also you do have these iconic scenes like where the jail the, the people in jail uh prisoners are whistling for the dog and the dog has the keys. Yeah. So I guess they have one They or definitely two scenes. borrowed many things from the Oh film, yeah, but I'm saying the, like the
0: main but the ride. main story like the Pirates of the, the Caribbean ride has its own kind of storyline and that's not really what they went for in the movie, they had the more supernatural elements to it. Oh, what's, what's yeah, save, they definitely What they've now kind of worked into the ride a little bit. And the one in Shanghai is fully based on the movies Battle for Sunken Treasure. it's fully based on movies with Davy Jones yeah. and and the, you know, the supernatural pirates and everything like that. So no, I mean I'm not knocking the movie or anything. I'm oh, just I saying know you're it's, not. it's very loosely based <laughs> no, you know, I'm no, doing I air get quotes you. there.
1: I was just playing devil's advocate.
0: Yeah, but one interesting thing I found in kind of researching the origins of the ride is that the attraction has 630,000 gallons of water in it. And it takes, Whoa. I saw that the bayou section, so I'm not sure if that's, if they mean the entire ride or just the, the section at the beginning of the ride. That is goes through the uh, Blue Bayou restaurant. But they say that takes three days to empty and refill if they ever have to do any sort of renovations on that section of the ride.
1: Okay. So I, I was curious because you, you had this up there. So 630,000 gallons in Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. Well, if you talk about the big fish tank in the Georgia Aquarium, that one holds six million gallons of water. So, it, oh yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a no, lot. No, no, no. But I mean, even that much—that's a lot so a of water in that, that. Gi- yeah, and that a giant, yeah, in that giant tank. So, yeah.
0: But but three days to empty and refill that yeah. is pretty incredible. And then at the end of the '60s, so we got kind of the last iconic ride that opened was the Haunted Mansion. Now, this one, and and it's interesting, if you watch the Imagineering story, they talk about this. The building that the Haunted Mansion was in, in New Orleans Square, actually sat there for two years before anything opened in it. So they built a building, and they weren't entirely sure what to put in there. They wanted some sort of like haunted attraction. Again, I think they wanted this to be like a walkthrough attraction originally, and it took them two years to... End up coming up with the Haunted Mansion kind of omni mover attraction in it. But again, it opened in 1969. So we just celebrated last year the 50th anniversary of the Haunted Mansion.
1: Oh my goodness. I didn't even think about it. That's why they had like all the, that's the, why they had the
0: merchandise for all it. All the
1: merch for it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's cool. It okay. is
0: amazing that Disney can make these rides that are so timeless that 50 years later are still popular are still working. I think that's that goes to show you it's kind of the difference between a theme park and just an amusement park or something because if you go to you know other amusement parks or something like that, roller coaster or rides, they don't have that much of a shelf life. I mean, you know maybe 20 mm-hmm. or 30 years they're getting replaced just yeah. due to mechanical purposes or
1: or, new, newer, better technology makes like those cool rides less cool. Right. So, I mean, I know uh, there's been there's many. If You remember, like, I mean, the 90s, early 2000s, there was the the roller coaster race. Who was gonna build the fastest, the highest roller coasters? And it would only the the fastest and highest ones would only last for a year or two before somebody would build one that's faster and higher.
0: You're right, and and I think this kind of just goes to show. That you know, Disney is is looking at decades down the line when they're designing a ride. I mean, I think a lot of times when all these new properties come out, like say a Zootopia or something that does really well at the box office, everybody's like, "Well, wh- when are we going to get a Zootopia ride? Like, why is it taking so long for Disney to design something?" And I think this just goes to show you that when they're designing something, they're not having a knee jerk reaction to make right. something that's going to be popular and then. You know, in five years is kind of surpassed by something. They want to make sure they design a unique ride system, an interesting story that will keep people entertained for decades to come, not years. I mean, look at Flight of Passage. That ride is so innovative that you know it's already been 2 or 3 years but in 20 years that's still going to be an innovative ride system it's not like somebody's going to surpass that you know you, you you could see not by leaps and bounds right at you least. could see pandora yeah in the same way that yeah pirates of the caribbean is surpassed somewhat but it's still a classic and people like it same with haunted mansion people are going to be wanting to go to pandora in 50 years
1: well not only that but they build these rides i think so that they can integrate the newest technology i mean it's not If they they could keep that general ride system and fix it up and make it better and still have a very innovative ride. But I think that what they do is... I mean, they do the same approach that they do to their movies. So, you know, Disney is famed for taking years and years and years on projects and then sometimes just scrapping them because they can't get them to work. They want want to get them right right because they know that people... Watch these movies over and over again. They know that the people who love these movies pass them on to their children. They pass them on to their, um, you know, their nieces and nephews. And so these are movies that are well loved and well watched. And so they want to make sure that they hold up for years to
0: come. I mean, you've watched The Lion King what, a thousand, two thousand <laughs> times at this point. They, I, they want to make sure it's good. I have now no idea. Now it's yeah. digital. You know, back in the day, you probably ruined some VHS tapes watching them so many times because they (laughs) degrade. Now that it's digital, you're good. You can watch it over and over again on a constant (laughs) loop. It's true. Yeah, you're right, though. I mean, they, they are. It's the same way they're building the, the movies. It's something that you can pass along from generation to generation. And I think that's why these rides are so popular. People mm-hmm. grew up in Disneyland riding them in the 60s and 70s, and now they want their kids to ride them and their grandkids to ride them. And that's why you know, everything's there. And they do continue to plus them. I mean, they're, they're, they put in better animatronics, they change the storylines a little bit to keep it fresh. But, you know, they don't have to like completely rip it out and make a whole new ride because it's still popular.
1: Well, and they also do pick themes that are timeless. You figure pirates of the Caribbean is all about adventure. People, no matter how advanced we become are still going to be into the idea of adventure and just a good time because that's what the pirates are doing is they're just having a blast. And then, um, you know, you talk about the haunted mansion, people have a fascination and fear of death. So, this ride is something that is timeless. Everyone, you're always going to have that fascination and fear of death. And then the fact that they kind of make it a fun, interesting thing, um, you know, in an experience, then it kind of shaves a little bit of that away.
0: That is a good point. I I wonder if they're going to have a a bigger issue with attractions building now because so much is driven on IP related Mm -hmm. that to your point, these rides from the 60s they're all timeless. The Matterhorn, Big Thunder Mountain, um Pirates of the Caribbean, Small World, Haunted Mansion. They're not based on any IP. If anything Disney made IP afterwards based Translate on Translate what
1: IP is again?
0: Intellectual property. There we go. So they, you know, they created an IP, of movies Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Haunted Mansion movie after the fact because the movies were so popular. But yeah, I do wonder if if in you know, 50 years will all of the rides being built, today, like Frozen. Like, I, I don't know that the Frozen ride at Norway, it's great, but I don't know that that's going to hold up 30 or 40 years down the road. That may, like They may have to replace some of these rides more frequently. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I, I think they are building rides that can last 20 or 30 years, but are they going to last 50, 60, 70 years when they're based solely on IP? Maybe. I mean, with, right. with Disney Plus and, and they keep – Keeping these movies fresh, top of mind well, to people? Well,
1: I mean, perhaps in I don't 60 know. years when Frozen 42 has come out and Elsa now has fire powers, well, then we'll be okay.
0: I don't think you're going to need Frozen 42 because, again, with Disney Plus now... <laughs> you took that comment so seriously. No, I mean, it's a valid point because I was thinking the same thing. Like, in 50 years, are they still going to be making Frozen movies? But I don't think you'll need that because they can just keep... Release in the same way they'll have
1: a live action frozen movie.
0: Well, they could potentially do that, but in the same way, they'll have that in the next 10 years, easy. In the same way, they have Snow White and then they have the Snow White 25th anniversary edition and then the 50th anniversary edition remastered in 4K. And then, you know, so in 50 years, they'll have frozen hologram version. I was gonna say that, you know, that they can do that. And what's so great to your point about these Disney movies is when you grow up and you have kids. You show them you just naturally show them to your kids. So they have a built-in kind of it it just builds generation to generation. They don't necessarily even need to re-release these movies because they're so ingrained. Like again, you've watched The Lion King so much. It's in mm-hmm. it's ingrained in you that you still watch it today.
1: It, it lives in me. <laughs>
0: it does. <laughs> it does live in you. <laughs>
1: Not really from the Lion King; it's more from Lion King Two, so, yeah. or the musical. Or but the musical—that's
0: the best song. But yeah, so you you would just naturally, you know, pass it down. So they're they're constantly going to be having new generations watching these movies, whether they re-release them or not. But I do think some of the some of this stuff they may struggle with a little bit. Yeah, like Zootopia. I mean, I think it's great, but is that going to be that noticeable? You know, down the road. I'm not sure. Maybe. I, I think it'll be an interesting thing when we're like in our eighties to see how much of this stuff is still around. I think you'll still have Pirates of the Caribbean. It'll be celebrating its its 100th uh, birthday there. So, all right. But so, so, so much. So we kind of talked a lot about Disneyland, Disneyland in the, in the mid sixties actually hit their, um, 20 millionth guest, uh, of all time. So in under 10 years, it, it did that. And so, because of that, because of that success, Walt started looking to expand and build another theme park. Yeah. So there was, a, there was a few failed ones. So he looked at building a ski resort in Mineral King, California in the Sierra Nevada area. And he went so far as like hiring some Olympic skiers and things and people to design it. And it never really got anywhere. If you're interested in that, I, I know the Disney Dish podcast uh, did an episode about this last year where they kind of talked into some like the unbuilt Disney stuff. Hmm. uh, And they had a really good episode on, on this mineral King. But so Walt looked at that in the mid sixties. He also seriously looked at St. Louis as, (laughs) as the next Disney park. So this mineral King thing was not gonna be a Disney park. It was going to be like a ski resort type thing. Yeah. But St. Louis was going to be a Disney park. It was this, an-
1: this blows my mind just to think about it because St. Louis isn't the same kind of climate as Anaheim. So you think about you know where we have parks now, and when basically the Disney model of where they do tend to build parks, they tend to build them in places with night attend to with places with nicer weather in
0: in America. I'll say the, inter- I was gonna say, the yeah. Paris parks is not none of the international parks. I mean, I mean, Paris uh, has a cold climate. Tokyo gets a lot of rain and yeah. a cold climate. That's why they have Main Street is undercover because mm-hmm. of the rain. Uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai, I think, have some seasons. So it, it's really only the U.S. parks that Do are kind think, of built for good year round. I mean, now, again, it doesn't Do you think get so... a cultural
1: thing that people want to take... When they want to take a vacation in the US, the U.S., we're unwilling to put up with kind of the rain, the snow, the cold weather. And it's been so idealized, like that perfect climate, that that's where we put our parks or do you think there's another reason? Well, I
0: will say, I mean, as much as the international parks have seasons and rain and stuff, they're still built in all year areas. Mm. So it's not like, uh, you know, if they built something in uh, the Northeast in the United States where they Iceland. get so much snow. Yeah. But if you would build something in the Northeast, <laughs> my point was you'd get so much snow and and the temperatures would, would, would freeze.
1: I'm just thinking about like frozen land in Iceland, like yeah. just houses, yeah. castle, real That's frozen cool. land. They wouldn't have to do
0: much, <laughs> but, yeah. But if you would build something in the northeast, it gets so cold and snowy, you you physically couldn't open the park for part of the year. So it's not yeah. it's not that bad. Like Tokyo, it gets cold, but they're not getting feet of snow. And the other issue you have with that type of weather is it damages the rides. Mm-hmm. So you don't have as long a shelf life on the rides. If, if you have this, you know, freeze on it. So yes, Paris gets some rain and cold, cooler temperatures. Tokyo gets some rain and cooler temperatures, but they're still built for year round parks. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, but so St. Louis, to your point, was, is not California. It's not Florida. So this is actually gonna be an indoor park. It was gonna be a five story mm-hmm. indoor park. and, there's, you know, a legend that
1: only on two point five acres. Which yeah, is it was going to really be. Very yeah, big. it
0: wasn't going to be. It wasn't going to be very big. It was going to be a small park. And the legend was this didn't go through because uh, Anheuser Busch wanted mm-hmm. them to sell beer, and Disney said no. But in actual, imagine
1: Disney selling beer. <laughs> yeah. <they did.
0: laughs> but yeah, in actuality, it was all about the money. So Walt kind of agreed to pay for the rides, but he wanted the St. Louis redevelopment corporation to pay for the building and they said no so he ultimately backed out of that yeah so i think it, it's interesting to kind of think about if this would have gone forward how would how would that have changed disney would he have never gone to florida would they just have disneyland in the small park in st louis and then would he have you know try to do other small indoor parks throughout the country yeah, good- i mean it, it's a it's kind of a what if that you could noodle on but this backed out, and then he kind of turned his attention to Florida. So 1965, they back out of St. Louis. And then in November of 1965, they kind of officially announced the Florida Project. And Walt had secretly been buying acres of land <laughs> under, under Shell yeah, different names because they, they didn't want people to know that it was Disney buying this land. So, they would have jacked up the prices. Exactly. So they announced plans for Disney World. They have... 30,000 acres. The idea was they were going to build a park called Disney world. And then Walt had the idea for Epcot, not as a theme park, but as an actual community. Right. And uh, again, so he, he didn't get to see any of this to fruition.
1: Wait. wait, so wait, let me see if I know what this stands for. Again, it's experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Am I right Correct. now? Yes. Wow. When we started this podcast, I did not know that. There
0: you go. You learn something <laughs> new every day.
1: Very, uh, assuring for one of the hosts of the podcast. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not something so, but yeah, it was it was going to be an actual community. Again, that kind of fell through and, you know, ultimately Roy finished uh Disney World the Magic Kingdom and they built the Epcot theme park there. So Walt didn't get to see Disney World being built, but it was his grand vision because, you know, he was aware of the limitations in Disneyland with space and the hotel operators making money off of him. So he wanted a ton of land where he could build a resort with hotels and kind of keep everybody in that Disney ecosystem. And Florida is where he ultimately landed Mm -hmm. again, magic kingdom opened in 1971. So this will kind of be the next decade, but yeah, like, like we kind of mentioned at the beginning, this was a huge expansion decade for Disney. I mean, all of the rides that were created, the laying the groundwork for Walt Disney world, all of the, Movies that came out, great animated movies that are still around today, Mm -hmm. Mary Poppins. I mean, so much of the IP that feeds the parks today came out in the 60s. I'm
1: trying to think just in general, how many things have come out of 101 Dalmatians? Because there was 101 Dalmatians, 102 Dalmatians.
0: Now there's the Cruella movie that's coming out. Well, they did a live action 101 Dalmatians in the 90s. Yeah, the live action one one with with Glenn Close. And they're going to be making a Cruella movie with Emma Stone. So that's...
1: Four, I think I just counted. And I'm sure that I'm I'm missing things. I'm
0: sure there's been direct to video animations and stuff on this as well. Huh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it is a classic one. It also is one that's not really represented in the parks too much.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really strange. It was kind of funny because when we went to tokyo uh to or, Disney is this is what you're yep, gonna say yeah, exactly i can see i can say. see the yep. idea dawning yep. on you but we when we went there it was shocking because they had those um headbands they were the the headbands that were really popular in tokyo and i've noticed them in the american parks but people wear mini ears in the american parks and mickey ears but over there they did these headbands that are kind of terry not terry cloth but um and they they are you know, different, their character, their character. Yeah. Headbands. So, so, but they're big ones that that they had. I think I ended up getting, did I get the Sully ones? I can't remember what I got.
0: You got the alien ones. Oh, I
1: got the alien ones, but they had Sully ones and, but they also, and a lot of people had them and they were really cute were the 101 Dalmatians ones.
0: And I was actually going to mention that they had a Corella DeVille walk around character at Tokyo Disney Sea as well. That's the first do we see her? Yes. Yeah, we saw her wa- walking around there, and then that's that's the only time I think I've ever seen uh, Corella in the parks. Yeah. So it is interesting that it's more prominent over in uh, Tokyo than yeah. it is kind of in the parks. So maybe with the new Corella movie, we'll see some more Hundred and One Dalmatians in the parks. The other thing uh, that happened in the sixties, and just kind of a, a final note here, is that Gene Autry appointed Walt Disney to the board of directors of. The uh, Major League Baseball team in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Angels, uh, in 1961 when they started playing, and not much really, you know, happened. Walt played a a hand in moving them from Los Angeles to Anaheim in the late 60s because that's where Disneyland was. But what's interesting about this is the Walt Disney Company actually owned the team from 1996 to 2003, and and they want to.
1: Angels in the outfield, exactly. and Angels in the infield, which is a movie that I didn't know existed until I read these.
0: <laughs> yeah, and actually, they uh, the team won the World Series under the Disney ownership in two thousand two. Yeah, that's pretty cool as well. So, so that that kind of you know seed was planted in the nineteen sixties with Walt having uh, with Walt being on the board of the team, and then they ultimately get purchased. Kind of the same thing happened with ABC. I mean, Walt did a lot of his TV shows with ABC. Early on in the 50s and 60s, and then ultimately in the 90s, Disney buys ABC. So yeah. it's interesting how those uh, things are kind of linked in decades later.
1: I'd be interested to see how Angels in the Outfield holds up. Because I remember I had the, the the cassette or the videotape. Is that what you used to call those things? Yeah, the videotape. And I watched it pretty frequently because I thought it was a good movie. I'd be interested to watch it again.
0: It's probably on Disney+. Plus. It'll have to be something oh, we sure have to check is. out. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, Along so with Togo,
0: that that one we got to check gotta out. Got to watch that one. Yeah, that it, I've heard good things about
1: it. Fun. Okay, so fun fact about Togo. Just just a real quick side fact. I'm sure that we'll. I'll probably watch it and then say this again. But Togo. So the the movie that when we were growing up, Universal's pic- pictures put out the movie Balto, which was fantastic, and then. My friend was texting the other day, texting us, and then said something about basically the plot line, which is a, about taking this medication to children who were dying. And I was like, oh, no, is that, is that Togo or is that Balto? So I looked up the plot lines and realized that these were, A, real dogs, and, B, they They're were the same movie. They were <laughs> real dogs in the same trip to deliver yep. medication to children. So actually Balto got a lot of the original credit, but Togo did the majority of so it. you have to of, watch of them
0: it. back to back. You have to watch Togo, and then Balto's the sequel. Yeah, that's how you have to watch them <laughs> in the correct order to get the full story. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, there we go. Yeah, but that, I mean, I've heard
0: I've heard good things about Togo on Disney Plus. So if anybody's watched it, let us know what you thought of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, when I get some time.
0: Because I've heard good things. So that that kind of wraps up the the 1960s. And again, like we've kind of mentioned with all these decades, I mean, a ton happens in all these decades, and so we try to talk about the more interesting pieces of it, but we definitely can't cover everything right so you know if we miss something a movie that came out uh, a ride that came out something that happened that you loved that happened in the 1960s uh please don't write us any hate mail <laughs> we're we're sorry we do our best to you know, again try to come up with the most interesting things
1: i mean we're already at 50 minutes here so
0: yeah yeah i mean we could do like a seven hour one of these maybe when we're done we'll put them all together whenever we're done and make like one big long podcast but but yeah so you know we, we try to touch on the the more interesting things. And again, the fifties, you could see the Disney company ramping up and then the sixties, again, I think it, to your point, it it became stable. It really started to blossom into the company we see today foreshadowing the seventies again with the death of Walt Disney, the end of the sixties, the Mm -hmm. seventies, it starts to get a little bit bumpy into the eighties and things. So we have a few decades here where we kind of hit some speed bumps. Right. coming up so well that's i mean the a, 70s
1: your, yeah i was gonna say the 70s will definitely be a speed bump and then the 80s will be when they start to find their stride again because that's the beginning of the renaissance
0: that's your tease to listen again for whenever we do the 70s <laughs> here uh you know in a couple months every every few months we're doing one of these so if you enjoy this one and you haven't listened to the 20s through the 50s go back and and check out those episodes um they're, they're all on there you can go back to our back catalog so if you enjoy this episode um, make sure you leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to us so that you can get that 1970s episode whenever it comes out. And uh, be sure to check us out on Facebook or Instagram. We're at Enchanted Ears Podcast on both. I want everybody to have a good week. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for letting us your ears. And we'll
0: uh, see you here next Monday. Bye.